listening to the Top Music Guitar Podcast, the show for guitar teachers to learn about the craft of teaching great guitar lessons that students love. If you're looking to start or expand your studio and make guitar teaching your full-time dream job, you've come to the right place. Each week, you'll get to hear from some of the top guitar teachers from around the globe and get their best tips and experiences so that you too can build your own dream studio. I'm your host, Michael, and I've founded one of the top guitar schools in Australia, written a best-selling curriculum, and I mentor guitar teachers. I'm excited to share my expertise with you and the wisdom of all the experts we interview. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Top Music Guitar Teaching Podcast. As always, I've got a real treat for you today and we've got a big, big, awesome list of special guests for 2023. So if you're tuning in for the first time this year, welcome. My name is Michael. I'm the host of the Top Music Guitar Podcast and head of Top Music. And of course, what we try and do at Top Music is take the knowledge from the people who have awesome teaching experience and brand new ideas and are doing really well in their business or with their students or online via YouTube and help distill that knowledge down into something that's going to help you move the ball forward with your teaching. And as promised, I've got a very special guest, a real treat, someone who I came across simply trying to improve my own playing, always thinking about better ways of doing things and finding out a bit more. So today we've got Keith Martin from the YouTube channel and website Fret Science. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. So Keith is located in Boston. I always muck up this state when I say it, Massachusetts. Did I say that one right? <laughs> Massachusetts, yes. So we've got uh, Keith from uh, obviously Boston. Do you teach in real life as well, Keith, or do you just run your YouTube channel? So I, I have not been a teacher for long. I, I just started teaching a little bit. Well, I, I taught my daughter. I gave her a few lessons a few years ago, and then she was sort of off and running. And I took on a few students this past fall when I was sort of beta testing my ideas before starting to make videos. Um, so I don't have a ton of teaching experience, but um, I have a lot of sort of professional presentation experience through my, my day job. That's really, really cool. And I, I don't think I've ever been in the position where uh, someone's gone, yeah, I'm going to test out my ideas on my real students for YouTube. Normally, it's I get some cool ideas off YouTube and then try that out with a real student. So that's a, a very interesting perspective there. And I came across your videos maybe, uh, I think, just before Christmas or maybe the first week of January. And I just saw this video. I was like, wow, this guy is taking a really awesome approach that breaks it down into really simple terms and takes something which is often a really, really confusing topic for people and breaks it down into bite-sized pieces and makes learning guitar way easier than it generally is. So uh, you definitely get kudos from me for that. And that's why we're here trying to figure out what is this awesome stuff you're doing and what's led to it. So can you maybe give us a brief overview of your journey so far? You've described yourself as a self-taught weekend warrior, doing a bit on the side round about your main job. Uh, and how you've taken the perspective of a computer scientist or computer science engineer and applied it to fretboard and learning guitar. And now here you are with your own YouTube channel and website teaching thousands of people because uh, I've seen you've done really well with the view count on some of your videos. So why don't you give us a, a, a brief overview of that long, all-encompassing journey there? So I've been playing guitar since the mid 80s uh, when I was a teenager. Um, so I played guitar for about 30 years by basically memorizing, memorizing finger positions from tablature. Um, I never really internalized the notes of the fretboard. 
but I sort of showed how far you could go with that approach. Um, I was able to, you know, learn challenging songs and I played in cover bands that played everything from, you know, Randy Rhodes with Ozzy Osbourne to uh, Eddie Van Halen and, um, and lots of things in between, lots on the hard rock spectrum. And so I could play things, but I didn't really understand what I was playing. And a few years ago, I decided that I wanted to buckle down and learn the fretboard and maybe learn to improvise. And I went out and I was reading all these books and watching all these videos. And I realized that there's just an insane amount of memorization that's required. Um, all these patterns that have to be internalized. And I hate memorization. And so my computer science brain kicked in and I started looking for shortcuts and I found some. And so for a couple of years now, I've had this idea that maybe I'm onto something that's a little bit different from how other people have thought about the guitar. Um, and I wondered if it's something that was going to help other people. And so, as I mentioned last fall, I took a few students, started a blog. And after a few weeks of uh, putting posts on the blog and posting them on LinkedIn and you know other places where who knows why guitar players would go to LinkedIn for lessons, but a, a former colleague of mine, uh, Dan Barry, who was um, the CEO of Riff Station, they were acquired by Fender a while back, and he's been you know, involved in the, um, the industry for a long time. He's currently a founder of a, a startup called Guitar App that's doing some really cool stuff. And so Dan reached out to me and he said, your blog posts are awesome, but you really need to get that material onto YouTube. And so I, I took a week off from work uh, at the end of November and started messing around with keynote of all things on my Mac and creating some animations. And that turned into you know what you saw and discovered on YouTube. Yeah. Now, if you haven't seen one of the videos that we're talking about here that Keith's put out there, like I'm taken aback that you've done it on keynote because they look absolutely outstanding. And I never would have guessed that in a million years. Uh, one of the questions I got for later is how did you do it? Of course. Um, but we'll get to that. But yeah, so you took a week off work and, and made some magic happen and uh, it's been, what's your sort of take on the experience that sort of shaped your plans moving forward, realizing that you've got a pretty good response from what you've got from it? Yeah. So I, I definitely realized that the, you know, posting on a blog is a hard way to reach an audience. And I've been really fortunate that the the videos that I've made have been, you know, picked up well by the YouTube algorithm and they're, they're starting to reach people. And it's one of the few places where you can get that kind of organic growth without putting a lot of money into advertising something. Um, and so I've definitely shifted away from writing blog posts and, and moved sort of more wholeheartedly into creating these videos. And I'm, I'm trying to chart out what the, the future of that is because um, so far, you know, all of the videos have been totally headless, right? It's just my animations and my voiceover. Um, and eventually, I'm going to need to be doing a lot more sort of on-camera guitar demonstrations. And um, and so I've got to figure out how to get into that. <laughs> yeah, it can be very daunting, but it's just like anything else. You When you first start playing guitar, you're not that good at it, but you don't give up. You keep practicing, you keep researching. You maybe even learn from a teacher or someone who's already doing it, and you get better. And the same is true of YouTube. Um, you just get out there, you do it. There's obviously 
I'm sure if you're doing some really great stuff on the technical side of things in terms of keynote, adapting that into your actual videos, you're going to have no trouble whatsoever. But uh, yeah, you just got to go out and do it and see what happens. Absolutely. That's the plan. Are these... I think you've got 14,000 subscribers, which is pretty significant for a new channel. Had you previously put up videos and taken them down or hidden, or did you literally go from zero to 14,000 in the last two months or so? No, it's, it's, it's literally been zero to 14,000 in the last two months. My first video found about 1,000 subscribers, and the, the second one, the, the YouTube algorithm somehow like caught on to it. Um, and between Christmas and New Year's, I went from about a thousand or two thousand subscribers to about ten or twelve thousand, um, and so it was really, really quick. And you know, since then, it's been fairly steady. But the amazing thing is that the the audience on YouTube is very engaged with the content. Um, I've, you've commented on at least one of my videos, and. You know, I'm finding that the the community has been super positive, and um, I'm seeing a lot of aha moments happening in in people who are seeing these videos, and that's super rewarding for me. Yeah, and I think anytime you're going to have a student have an aha moment, whether it's in real life or via YouTube, it, it is just wins up so much trust and faith and goodwill. And if you can help someone solve a problem they've had for the last 15 years in a 10 minute video or a short part of a lesson, then, you know, the impact you have on them is absolutely amazing. And I got that sense from your videos, even though I'm have considerable experience to see it explained that way and broken down, I was just sitting there going, man, so many people are going to get so much value out of this. That's great. That That's certainly the hope. Um, I have had, you know, there are some haters out there. There are certainly some people that, um, that really want to, you know, continue to push the old ways. It's, it's almost like, um, you know, a fraternity or something where you know I've been through the hazing to get to where I am and now you have to do the same thing. And I'm I'm trying to show people some shortcuts around that. And we suffered for our art and we want other people to continue to suffer unnecessarily for it. <laughs> yeah, there's so many things like that on the out on the internet. And it's um I only really started taking YouTube seriously from maybe the last week of November. And I think some of the feedback you get, like, wow, these are total strangers out on the internet that just give amazingly positive feedback and share how much you've helped them and they're so nice and kind. And then you get the complete opposite side of the coin with that where there's people who are just so angry and filled with hate and vitriol and they've got to go out there and pick fights with people. And, uh, yeah, it's just you, you get the extreme of each spectrum which is uh, nothing in between, which is somewhat funny all the time. But, you know, as long as you keep doing what you're doing, um, you will get far more people who enjoy what doing who support you than the haters who are going to detract you down. And as, as Pebble Round says, well, go make your own YouTube channel <laughs> and do your own video. Now, I did want to ask you a few more questions. And part of what drew me to how you've talked about and approached it is saying you don't really like these patterns or this memorization. And one of the big things that so many of my students, and I'm sure this is a universal problem for guitar students the world over, is how do they get more results out of less practice? How do they simplify the process? And I think smartphones and YouTube and instant gratification has made it really easy uh, to shorten our attention spans and want that instant kind of feedback. So how did your computer science background and your hate of repetition lead to your way of learning things and explaining things? So I think we do need repetition when we practice, but I think that often we're repeating the wrong things or we're repeating things for the wrong reasons. 
you can you can certainly learn a, a scale pattern and you know run it up and down the fretboard over and over and over again, and that will get it into your fingers. And there's some value in that. But what I think is missing in the way that a lot of people approach learning scales is the understanding of what's going on inside and how the various patterns relate to each other. So one of the one of the insights that I had when I was um, studying these patterns is that if you if you didn't have the the major third interval between the G and the B string on the guitar, all of the scale patterns are just sort of rotations of each other. They're all just shifted um, by one string um, from each other. And when you start to see them in that way, you see that there are sub patterns that repeat. Um, and I've come up with you know silly names for that. In the pentatonic scale, I talk about the rectangle and the stack as being these sub-geometric patterns that are, are part of the, the wider um, scale patterns. And what I found is that if you think about them in terms of these smaller patterns, they're easier to learn and they're easier to make music with because if you're playing, for example, the, the stack, which is one of the parts of the pentatonic scale, um, and you're playing it in sort of the, the standard form one position, it's on the, you know, the A through the G strings, but you can also play that same pattern you know, up on the, the G, B, and E strings. It's distorted a little bit by the, um, that interval between the G and the B string, but they're the same notes and they do the same things musically. So learning how to play something on one should teach you something about how to play it on the other. Um, and that's not often the way that it's taught in my experience. I think that the computer science aspect of it is more just the way that I approach thinking about things. I think about things in terms of two concepts from computer science. Um, well, one is really from philosophy, but minimum description length is this computer science concept of um, how what's the shortest way that you can describe something so that a computer program could recreate some output that you're looking for. And it consists of two parts. There's a model part of it, and then there's the program that runs on the model, the program that tells the model, you know, what instructions it needs in order to create the output. Um, another way of thinking about it is Occam's razor, uh, this idea that the, the simplest explanation is probably the correct one. And so finding the simple building blocks and finding the right representation, the right mental representation. So, you know, when I'm looking at the opening phrase of Jimmy Page playing the, the solo on Stairway to Heaven, Right there's a whole bunch of notes in there. It's mostly running up and down the the A minor pentatonic scale, um, and then the last note that he hits is a, is an F note. And so having the mental model of okay that this is a phrase that's in A minor pentatonic, but the reason that he's landing on an F note is because that's the root of the chord that he's playing over at that time, and that makes a good landing target. That's a much simpler explanation than put your finger on the seventh fret of the G string and bend up a whole step and then play, you know, numbers and, and fret numbers and string numbers is not a, an efficient way to communicate that information. So that's basically the gist is uh, 
trying to think about it in a different way that that makes it a little bit simpler. And you know, the way that I'm describing it right now is probably making it sound more complex than it is. I think the the videos distill it down to um, something that is you know about as boiled down as it can get. Yeah, and the sign of a good teacher is someone who can take a complex topic and make it simple, whereas the opposite is where you take a simple uh, concept and make it more complex than it needs to be. And that is clearly evident in a lot of institutionalized guitar education. And I think it's very tricky because there's self-taught people, there's people who've gone through university, there's people who've taken lessons with other great players, and there's just so many ways you can go about learning guitar. But for whatever reason, I definitely want to get into this discussion a bit later on when we get to that point is this this standardized ways of learning guitar which are very rooted in academia which go you must learn this and then this and then this and it's just so out of touch with modern guitar education modern education as a whole and much more better ways of doing things and as you mentioned on your youtube channel there's so many people that want to cling to these older ways of doing things without ever considering hey is there a better way and if you can apply that arkham's razor approach and go yeah what is the simplest way we can go from A to B and explain it. And that more often than not results in the student having that aha moment and finally getting it. Exactly. So that's the computer science uh, approach and the engineer brain there. What about the cognitive science? So what sort of led to an interest in this and what are some uh, conclusions you've drawn from taking this cognitive science or learning psychology and applying that into your teaching and your lessons? Yeah, so my interest in cognitive science goes back to the 1990s when I was a PhD student working in computer science, but studying the brain and trying to understand how does the brain make sense of things? How does the human ear pull apart sounds and understand, you know, what is the source of that sound and what is that sound source trying to say? And so a couple of, of things, concepts that I came across when I was studying cognitive science, one is there's this famous psychology paper from the 1950s by George Miller called uh, The Magical Number 7, Plus or Minus 2. And in that, he introduces this idea of, um, he calls them chunks. And so <laughs> he's talking about working memory in the brain and the idea that our working memory can hold a small number of things in mind at one time and manipulate them. And that, that number of things is on the order of seven. And so our most common experience with that is, you know, back in the days where we didn't have our cell phones programmed with everybody's number, you might have to remember somebody's phone number. And when I was growing up, phone numbers in the United States were seven digits. And you could somebody could tell you their phone number and you could hold that in your memory and remember it for a few minutes um, unless until you wrote it down and the observation from all of this is that if we're limited to holding a small number of things in our head we got we should be careful about what things we're putting in there and we should have the right types of mental models available in our long-term memory so that the the five or seven or nine things that we're holding in our head are rich and they're telling us something really valuable. And so going back to that Jimmy Page, Stairway to Heaven example, representing an entire phrase as being a run up a particular scale and then landing on a root note of a triad is, again, a lot more compact and something that you can remember a lot more easily than um, all of the notes individually. The other example from 
cognitive science that I'm a big fan of is um, Daniel Kahneman had a, a best-selling book called Thinking Fast and Slow. It was on the, the top of the, the bestseller list for years. And in that book, he talks about how the brain has really two systems for responding to things. He calls them system one and system two. And system one is fast and instinctual and emotional. Um, it's the, the sort of the reflex response. And that's where you want to be in music. You want to be in the moment and responding and not having to think about things. System two is slower, more deliberative, more logical. And so ironically, what I'm teaching people is the system two stuff. I'm teaching you mental models that are compact enough that you can keep them in your brain. So you don't have to write things down on paper and constantly refer to a reference. You can recall them. It may be slow to recall them, but if you practice recalling them over and over again, you're basically transferring those models from system two, the slow part of what Kahneman's talking about, to system one, where they become instinctual and really fast. So those are the, those are the principles that I'm trying to work from. Yeah, most definitely. And that book, for anyone that hasn't read that, put that one on your to-buy uh, list or your to-read list because it is an outstanding publication. So how would you go about teaching your students or incorporating the cognitive science into the actual lesson itself? And Because uh, sometimes we as professionals or people who are interested in self-help or you know, bettering ourselves – will get right into this kind of stuff and you teach it to your students and they just look at you like a weird or, oh, you're one of those kind of woo-woo kind of people. So how do you kind of bridge the gap and get this applied to your lessons without the students sort of cottoning on or realizing it or getting scared off? I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record, but I think that one of the main keys is getting students to the point where they don't have to refer to a whole lot of different diagrams, where they understand things enough that they could recreate those diagrams. They could write them down from their head without referring to something and eventually get to the point where they can apply them directly from their head to the fretboard. I think it's really important. And one of the, so I, I had the really great fortune when I was at MIT in the 90s to, um, to get to spend a little bit of time with Marvin Minsky, who was one of the, um, the fathers of artificial intelligence. I mean, ironically, he was very anti-neural networks and neural networks are sort of eating the world right now. But he was brilliant. And one of the things that he very often said is that if you only understand something in one way, you don't understand it at all. And so one of the things that I am reinforcing with my students and trying to live through the, the videos and the, the blogs that I'm making is teaching different ways of looking at the same information um, and the ability to, to think about them in different ways. So, you know, if I'm teaching a student the, the pentatonic scale, I'm not just going to start with form one, a minor pentatonic scale at the fifth fret. You know, I will talk through, these are the intervals of the scale. These are what the intervals are. How would you play that scale on one string up and down? How would you do it if it was if you were ha limited to two strings up and down? What do the patterns look like if you do that? And then the things that I talk about in the the videos that I've I've published so far, uh, breaking it down into sub patterns across the the six strings, being able to 
apply those different mental models and think about the 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 scales, the chords, the arpeggios in in multiple different ways, I think is the key to to getting students to understand things better and to make faster progress because after a little bit, they can actually teach themselves. That's awesome. A, a very important answer then. I loved how you said, if you can't explain things more than one way or think about them in more than one way, you really are limited. And that's something to do with guitar. Do I do like a forward pattern, a backwards pattern? There's so many different options we have. Do I do it on a single string? Do I go vertically? And yeah, the more we help our students make those connections and see not just isolated patterns, but how the entire fretboard connects as a whole, do they finally understand the guitar and can drive it around just like their hometown? And an analogy I'll often use with my students is, remember when you're a kid and you only knew the way from your house to maybe the milk bar. And then as you got a bit older, you could go from your house to the milk bar or your house to grandma's house. And then as you get a bit older, you, you learn a few new places and a few new ways. And by the time you've got your driver's license and your car, you can literally go anywhere you want in the city and you're confident with it. And your fretboard will expand the exact same way. But if you only know one way of going or one road, uh, then you're going to get stuck on that one road. Right. I, th- I think the other piece of advice that um, is not obviously nothing that's new with me, but that is really essential is that you have to practice the things that are hard for you. If you constantly go back to the things you already know, you're never going to make any progress. And so I really like that. I've had a couple of students, you know, and Granted, I've only had a handful of students so far, um, but the few that I've worked with, I've been able to sit down with them and sort of teach them like the modes. In an hour, I can teach them two or three different ways to think about the modes and, and lay them out on the fretboard. And that's enough for them to go off and come up with their own exercises for how to how to internalize those. I give them some hints, you know, three notes at a time, move that up to the, the next three notes. That's one of the things that's really worked well for me is coming up with my own exercises based on whatever it is that I'm struggling the most with, whatever my current mental block at the time is. Yeah, that's excellent. And yeah, so many students end up avoiding the hard stuff and just doing what they can already do because it's easy and it's enjoyable. But that's what leads to stagnation and growth and, and the monotony of just doing the same things over and over again. So, yes, very, very important point. You need to work in the challenge zone because that's where you make the most progress. Now, we mentioned before that there's so many people holding on to the old ideas. And in the little email exchange we had before this, you mentioned that guitar hasn't really advanced at all in about 50 years since uh, you mentioned the cage system. And I, I see from your videos you're a big proponent of that. So why do you think guitar hasn't really evolved that much uh, in the grand scheme of things? That's a great question. I I don't have a really great answer for that. I do know that, you know, there's this guy, Keith Allen, who was a, a 20-year-old guitar instructor in the early 70s, came up with the cage system. And it was in a, there was an article in Guitar Player Magazine that was profiling the music school that he taught at, where he basically outlined the basic principles of it. And the conceptualization of it hasn't really changed much since then. The way that we teach it hasn't changed much since then. I think that there has been a big missed opportunity in that. And, and that's what I'm taking advantage of with the, the little keynote animations that I'm making is that there are some aspects of the, these things that 
you really need to visualize to be able to internalize. You know, many guitar players are visual learners, um, and the guitar fretboard lends itself to, to visual thinking. But learning that stuff from a book with you know static diagrams doesn't really get you there. And having somebody just explain it to you or demonstrate it on the fretboard, I think also doesn't really get you there. And so some of these things, like my little animations showing the patterns for the scales as they shift from one string set to another, um, and how the the warp between the, the G and the B strings affects the geometry of that, that has opened a lot of eyes. And you know that should be something that's been taught for years and years and years. I've only ever come across it in a couple of obscure books. Yeah. And there's so many cool little things like that. And the cage is almost the macro. The cage system is this big 10,000 foot view of the guitar. Whereas as you've said, if you dive right into it and you find all these other little patterns that link and inter intersect and yeah, as to why it is, I couldn't tell you, but what would you say to people who are kind of clinging to that old way of learning? What better ways or more deeper insights? Uh, of course, you just mentioned one of them, but what other kind of things do you think people are missing out on by sticking to these older ways of doing things? I That's something I don't have a great answer to. I think that I think we should all be open to learning new ways of thinking about the same thing. Going back to that that Marvin Minsky quote that if you only understand something one way, you don't understand it at all. I think that if we all have an openness to, to learning new ways of thinking about things, then we're going to be able to reach more students because not everybody understands things in the same ways. Some students will require a different explanation than others. And the more explanations that we have in our toolkit, the, the more effective we can be as teachers. Yes, 100%. And have you, just just put like a detracting from the thing or getting sidetracked, but have you given much exploration to the three note per string systems for learning guitar? Yeah. In fact, I, that, that almost was my first video. I, I think that the three note per string system is actually very, very close to the caged system in a lot of ways. And there's, there's so much overlap between them. They get talked about as being competitors, but I think that they are very complementary to each other. For myself, the way that I think about the fretboard, I think in terms of the, the three note per string as I'm going horizontally on the, the fretboard, when I'm playing in more in position and I'm trying to go back and forth between like the pentatonic scales and uh, the modes, then I would use the, uh, the caged scale shapes. But really, I don't think about them in terms of the, the scale shapes. I think about them in terms of the, the smaller patterns that repeat as you go across different strings, right? The three note per string scale is really just a seven string repeating pattern. Um, and it gets presented as this is the the Dorian three note per string, uh, just because it happens to start on you know the the second scale degree of the major scale on the on the low E string. But if you understand the the pieces of that seven string repeating pattern, you can play any of the modes um, with that pattern. And and skilled guitar players do. This is not news to anybody. But I think beginners end up internalizing a, an oversimplified version of that 
where, okay, there's seven different patterns and that one's the Dorian one, that one's the Phrygian one and so on, uh, which is wrong. Yeah, most definitely. And it's interesting how the whole guitar community teaches or just plays in general are so divided and it's us versus them, black versus white when it comes to be the the cage versus three note per string systems. Whereas if you just learn both and apply them to the situation which best suits one or the other, you can get so much more out of playing. Totally agree. And and I think the split between, you know, three notes per string is for the shredders and um and caged is for, for everybody else, I think is completely wrong as well. Yeah. And that's just if, if you're playing Jimi Hendrix kind of stuff or that late sixties, early seventies where they're using primarily cage based ideas, then the best way to get that sound and to make it easy for yourself is to learn the cage system and apply it there. Whereas if you are getting more into that sort of shred kind of stuff with the three note per string scales, the sequences, and of course, uh, putting the arpeggios and the sweeps over the top, then yeah, three note per string system is uh, definitely the way to go. But you know, why not both? <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Now, in terms of uh, creating your own YouTube channel, what made you decide to go? Uh, I know you kind of touched based on this before when you mentioned someone else you worked with sort of gave you the nudge, but what ultimately led to you maybe first starting a blog? So I'll back up a step here. My understanding was you were you were blogging and creating articles and you got a bit of interest and then you transitioned to a YouTube channel and a website. Yeah, that's right. I It really started about two years ago. So I had had these breakthroughs for myself and I really had this feeling that I was onto something new that could potentially help other people. And I, I started talking, I used to work at a company that had a lot of musicians around. And so I would chat people up and, and try to explain my ideas. And I wasn't very good at it back then. And I still wasn't entirely sure if I was onto something. And, and so a few months ago, I decided to just take a plunge and um, I put out the word in my my local network that I wanted to take on a few students and try out some ideas. And I started writing these these blog articles. And um, and so th- basically the reception was was pretty positive at a, a micro level. And I thought that, you know, the next step would be to try to to reach a bigger audience. I <laughs> I tried advertising on Facebook, that did not work well for me. <laughs> um, but YouTube did. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy that it's starting to reach a decent audience now. Awesome. And is the plan moving forward to um, continue growing the channel to create courses? Or to just is this just a hobby thing that you're doing on the side? So it's a hobby thing for now. I, I've sort of dreamed for a while that this could be my uh, sort of passion project in retirement. Um, I'm a Few way, few years away from that at the moment. Um, so for now, it's it's definitely a part time, um, again, sort of weekend warrior type of thing for me. But um, it's super motivating that that people are embracing it, and and that's definitely causing me to to spend like every waking hour thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and in terms of the process, I know you've mentioned you've uh, you're using Keynote and and just the PowerPoint style presentations there. So What's the creation process? Everything from conceiving the idea right up to hitting upload that goes into creating one of your videos. So one sort of secret ingredient in this is that I um, I spent a few weeks earlier this year writing some um, software for myself that to generate fretboard diagrams. I wanted to to write some software that would let me in you know one or two lines of code. Say that I wanted a 
you know, a three note per string scale pattern starting on the fifth fret in, you know, this key or whatever, and, and have it print out something that was, was really pretty nice. And so I spent a lot of time writing the code in such a way that, that I could specify the types of diagrams I was going to need to explain this, these concepts. And that has made it easy for me to, um, if I have an idea for something that I want to animate with a few lines of code, I can generate the pieces of the diagram that I need and pull them into to Keynote. And then one of the things that really distinguishes Keynote from PowerPoint is the the magic move transitions between slides where it, it basically just matches um, objects from slide to slide and, and makes smooth transitions between them. And so I, I've dived sort of deep into the animation controls in Keynote to try to, to make things um, smooth and elegant. And um, it's, it's pretty amazing what you can do with a tool that was not meant for this purpose. Yeah. And as I mentioned a bit earlier in the podcast, when you first told me it was just Keynote, I was like, no way, this looks like it's you know very high budget animation going into this. Yeah, the, the first four videos are literally just a, a Keynote slide deck and my audio is all, my voiceover is all done in one take. Uh, I, I sit down, I hit screen record, capture the whole thing and it's done from a script. Um, so I, you know, I write my script on the side and and try to make it as clear as possible, and that's that's where I spend the bulk of the time. So each each of these videos has taken me about twenty hours to to create, and I would say that a third to a half of that time is spent on coming up with the the story, making it clear, understanding exactly what animations and diagrams I need, and then I'll spend another third of the time, or if not more on making the animations and then the the recording and mastering process is very quick that that's like an hour or two um to to basically rehearse it a couple of times make a recording tweak the audio and uh you know cut out some of the awkward silences if i have them but it's uh, it's pretty straightforward yeah very cool uh, so a really big obviously investment in time but when you think about i think one of your videos has like 57,000 views on it or something similar, and you know, times that by ten, you've obviously got a huge return in the amount of view hours uh, on what you've put in there. Yeah, it's it's thousands and thousands of hours that people have spent watching them, which just it boggles my mind the kind of reach that you can get with a platform like this. Yeah, that doesn't that just it's so hard to fathom like how much time just accumulates with people watching your videos. There's some crazy numbers on the back end. Absolutely. And did you uh, have to invest a lot into researching and learning how to use Keynote or is that something you kind of had on the side from your day job uh, carryover? No, it's definitely something that I... So I've been a um, an engineer for going on 30 years and you know, for the last, say, seven or eight years of my career, I've been primarily an engineering manager. And in my, my former job, I was spending a lot of... T- a lot of my time is making compelling presentations to to try to you know convince the stakeholders to take a particular course of action and and so i I got pretty good at making presentations that were highly visual not a lot of text and you know hopefully a little bit emotionally compelling and so you know i've been able to to leverage 
those skills that I, I built up, which is nice. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not the uh, the most natural on-camera personality. That's very cool to know. And not to keep on blowing smoke, as I, as I seem to be doing here, but to see the high-quality animation. And any of you guys listening at home, definitely check it out. We're going to post the links to all the stuff here for you guys to check out, all of Keith's work there. But the point I keep coming back to is just how amazing this looks. So what if you are just starting a YouTube channel or you're thinking about getting into that kind of thing, don't beat yourself up if it doesn't look amazing straight off the bat. Just like once upon a time, you weren't good at guitar and you weren't good at being a teacher and you got better at doing them over and over again. Don't look at Keith's work and then just be like, oh man, this is so much better than what I'm doing. I'm just going to quit now. He's obviously built that up through years and years and years and decades of, of presentation work in another different field. And he's been able to transfer that skill across to video making. Now, Keith, I've only got uh, a handful of questions uh, coming up and we're probably down to my last 10 minutes. But you did mention that uh, you, you'd done some cover band work, you'd done a lot of playing, but it wasn't until a bit later on that you explored improvisation. So what was your journey through the topic of improvisation like? And if you do help students with that at this point, how have you gone about uh, teaching and shaping the experience for your students when it comes to creativity? So I've always wanted to be able to improvise. And I, I think it, it, the, the desire to do that started for me all the way back in high school. Um, so one of my stories from my youth is that uh, I started as a clarinet player. And that's actually where I got my, my music theory from uh, was I studied at a conservatory um, when I was in high school. And as a perk of taking lessons there, I was able to get um, music theory lessons for free. And I ended up also taking a couple of semesters of music theory in college. So I've got a, a decent grounding in the basics. But in high school, my high school jazz band would not allow me to audition on clarinet because the, the director at the time thought that clarinets don't belong in jazz. And I wasn't prepared to double on saxophone at that point. Um, and so the summer before my senior year in high school, I decided that I was going to be the bass player in the in the jazz band. And I had sort of fooled around with bass, but I had never really done anything with it. I got the couple of charts that I needed to learn to be able to audition. And I taught myself to read um, on bass guitar, mostly just first position stuff. Because uh, I still didn't know the rest of the fretboard very well. And I got into the jazz band. And so we started rehearsing and performing. And most of the charts at that level were all written out. I didn't have to, you know, craft my own walking bass lines or anything. But there was one tune where there was a section that re was requesting a bass solo. And what I played um, was pretty horrific. Um, and, and it ended up being very similar every time we performed it because I just knew a few tricks and, and didn't have any good ideas. And so I knew that I really wanted to get better at that. And when I switched over to guitar after um, I graduated high school, I always had in the back of my mind that that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to get there. And so I ended up reading a lot of things um, one book that I came across actually just a few years ago that helped me a ton is um, by a Berkeley guitar instructor named John Finn. Um, I've got the name of the book here. It's called Advanced Modern Rock Guitar Improvisation. And that was actually a lot of a lot of the insights from that book led to, to what I'm presenting now. I've simplified it a little bit from, from what he talked about. But 
I've come to to have this mental model for improvisation, which is that when you're playing over a set of chords, at any point in time, you need to know what the chord is that you're playing over as sort of a basic. And for wherever your fingers are on the fretboard, you should be able to instantly find where the root of that chord is, where the the relevant intervals are around that root, where arpeggios and scale fragments are in that neighborhood. Um, it's almost like the fog of war in a, a video game where um, the things that are right around the area you're focusing on are very clear um, and you can see all the details. And then when you get beyond a certain distance, um, everything is sort of grayed out. And that's the way that I imagine that an improviser sees the fretboard. I actually had a, a funny email exchange when I was in grad school with um, Mike Keneally, who's the, the fantastic guitar player. He played with uh, Frank Zappa in the 80s and has had an amazing career since then. He's He's one of the freest guitar improvisers that I've ever encountered. Um, basically, he hears something in his head and he can make it come out on the fretboard. Um, and so when I was in grad school, I had an email exchange with him because at the time he was active on Usenet in one of the news groups that I was following. And I asked him about improvisation. And, and my theory at the time was that the way that people improvise is they have a catalog of licks that they know. And they are very good at applying the right licks in the right context in order to um, string something together that becomes a solo. And uh, and Mike clearly basically slapped me down. He said, that's not at all how it works. Um, and I think he's right and wrong at the same time, because I think a lot of improvisers do a lot of that. But you know, that that sort of set me on this direction of I really need to understand things at a more fundamental level. And, you know, unfortunately for me, it took me 25 years to since then to to start to to make some decent progress on that. And I'm I'm still a mediocre improviser, but I I do feel like I now understand what are the things that I have to work on in order to get better at that. And it goes back to that Daniel Kahneman system one and system two, right? The, the I have the system two working where I know where my roots are. I know where all my intervals are and where my scale fragments go around, in, you know, in that neighborhood of the, the fretboard. And I'm working now on training system one to be able to, to do that basically intuitively. And that's just lots and lots of repetition. Definitely. And yeah, it's interesting that he, he sort of slapped you down with that answer. I don't say... I wouldn't say he's 100% correct, but he's not incorrect as well. And I think it's almost like there's there's different tiers to improvising or different levels. And and that is a level where, yeah, you learn a bunch of licks and you regurgitate them in different orders or match them in different contexts. And that's a very valid way of, of improvising. But there's that whole other level where people are just spiritually connected from a greater power or the universe to their instruments. And it's just a flow of consciousness and and that's where the true masters lie. But sometimes we may have to adopt their thinking to get to the level that they're at. Yeah. We can't all be Guthrie Govan. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> we, we cannot. But Keith, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. My last question for you before you tell us where we can like and subscribe and follow you is if you had one last little bit of wisdom to impart on our listeners, what would that be? I think it's that you could never have too many ways of understanding something. 
If you see something that looks like a new way of thinking about something you already know, don't dismiss it because you already know how to do something. Take a look at it and see if you can internalize it and and maybe see the thing that you think you understand in a little bit of a different light. And don't listen to the people who say that the old ways are best. (laughs) There's too much of that. I went through hell to get here and so should you. (laughs) No, some very, very solid advice there. And yes, we always want to be looking for better ways of doing things. And just because someone's done it for a hundred years, doesn't mean we should keep persevering for another hundred, especially if there's uh, a better way of doing it. So Keith, thank you so much for coming on the Top Music Guitar Teaching Podcast. Listeners can find you at fretscience.com and your YouTube channel and, and is there any other social media you want to tell us about? I'm, I'm also on Facebook, but uh, the fretscience.com and YouTube are the, the two big ones. So make sure you check out some of Keith's videos and his website. Make sure you like and subscribe. He's only got four videos up and who knows how many you'll have by the time you hear this in a week or two from this recording. But guys, they are a real treat. I'm a big proponent of three note per string, but it made me go, you know what? Maybe I need to have a look at this cage stuff once again and get back into it. And it's for someone who's been learning guitar for 17 years, teaching guitar for 15 years, I saw this and went, wow, this is so awesome. So many people could learn from that. And I've got to have this guy on the podcast. So Keith, thank you so much for coming on board. And we'll hopefully have you on again another time in the future. And I look forward to seeing some cool videos on YouTube. Thanks, Michael. It's been a huge pleasure. No worries. Well, enjoy. Thank you once again for your time coming on. And to our listeners, make sure that you share this around. You like, subscribe. If you've got any other great guests you want us to interview for 2023, make sure you suggest those. Michael at topmusic.com. You can email me or at Michael Gumley on your favorite social media platform. And guys, let's make 2023 the year where we change something about the way we teach for the better. And with guys like Keith and a ton of other really cool guests, we can hopefully give you some inspiration to improve your life, your teaching, the experience for your students and everything in between. So one more time, thanks, Keith. And guys, we'll see you in the next exciting episode. Thank you. If you enjoy this show and want to hear more of our work, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. For links and resources mentioned in this episode, including a free ebook on how to find more guitar students, visit us at www.topmusic.co slash guitar or check out the show notes. And lastly, thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.